from the Great Yarmouth and District Talking Newspaper Association. Hello and welcome to online version number 19 of Grapevine. Officially entitled volume 40, number 31, and recorded on the 31st of July, 2020. In this week's news, the Borough Council is having issues with finances over the pandemic. A large increase planned for the wind farms off the east coast and the sad loss of key members of both Great Yarmouth and Caister Lifeboats. Hi, I'm Graham, your presenter, and joining me from home is this week's newsreader, Andrew, who, in addition, brings us talk with a member of a successful 1960s local beat group, as they were quaintly described in those days. However, let's start with the first part of the news. Hello, everybody. This is Andrew here again on Grapevine, and welcome to the show on the first weekend of August in this uh, extraordinary year. But I hope we've got some varied and interesting items for you to enjoy today, so let's get underway. Great Yarmouth Borough Council is facing losses of over £1 million in income due to the coronavirus. The impact of the pandemic on the Town Hall's balance sheets were aired by councillors at a meeting on the 30th of July, after a report by the Authority's Finance Director estimated there will be, quote, in the region of £1.1 million irrecoverable income from sales, fees and charges. The figure includes income from car parks, which were closed during lockdown, as well as money from business rates and council tax, which is, quote, slightly below expectations for this time of year. The report also says the council has had to dip into its reserves above the level planned in the current financial year. It says the impact of COVID-19 is something that no authority could have expected and therefore the continued lobbying for government support to mitigate the impact continues to be important for the longer-term financial sustainability for local government. It is difficult to accurately project the ongoing financial impact to the authority of COVID-19 from 2021 to 22 onwards, the report states. And staying on the local theme of problems with trading and income, shops on a normally bustling high street could be forced to close if pedestrians fail to follow a one-way system designed for social distancing, the chairman of a local traders association has said. You may remember in early June, Great Yarmouth Borough Council introduced the temporary measures in preparation for the reopening of shops on Galston High Street, where barriers placed on the road next to two of the narrower stretches of pavement are meant to create more space for pedestrians. But Kevin Huggins, chairman of the Galston Traders Association, has said the measures are, quote, not working. Many shops are seeing a real downturn in business and struggling to make ends meet, he said. The main reason for this is the, the lack of parking due to the barriers. In normal circumstances, motorists can park without charge for half an hour on the high street. But Mr Huggins said the one-way system for pedestrians is just in the main being ignored. He continued, I've spoken to vulnerable people who've been in isolation. They were looking so much forward to coming out of 13 weeks of isolation. But they come down to the high street, bumping into people walking past them, and they're going back into isolation thinking, what's the point? He said he has been getting abuse when he points out people are walking the wrong way. It's just pure ignorance, he said. I've pleaded with the council to relax the barriers by just having them outside of the shops 
that may have to have people queuing outside. But with people continuing to walk the wrong way, that won't happen, he said. He said the high street is in crisis and that five shop owners have told him they will close unless business improves. In a statement, the borough council said it will be increasing floor markings to highlight the one-way system and stickers on lampposts reminding shoppers to keep left. We also plan on opening up a small section of car parking at the north end of the high street, the councillor said. Gareth Howe, who runs BG's Diner with his wife, said, This time last year, the high street would have been absolutely crowded. I accept that we have coronavirus and people are worried. We do understand about social distancing. We're not complaining about that but people are not stopping. Cars are just driving along and they're not able to stop. I have customers coming in complaining that they can't park anywhere. The diner, which Mr Howes took over in January, reopened on July the 4th, but we're getting hardly anybody in, he said. Mark Allen, the owner of Fleetwood Butchers, said, My type of customers, they come to me specifically, pull in and are gone again, hence the half-hour parking is ample for customers who use the high street but because they can't park, they won't stop. He said the barriers and the one-way system are a complete mess. Footfall into the shop is practically non-existent because there are no people out there. He said 80 to 85% of his trade is still deliveries, whereas in normal times it would average 10 to 15%. To stop people parking is just ridiculous, he said. And glancing out the shop window across the road to Farm Foods and Wilkinson's, normally a busy spot, especially in July, the butcher said, all I can see is three people. Well, there used to be only one windmill you could see on the seafront at Great Yarmouth. Well, two, I suppose, if you count the one on the crazy golf course. But now they're very much part of our offshore view. And a geodata specialist firm are set to scan the East Anglian seabed in a deal worth £55 million. Wind energy firm Scottish Power Renewables has awarded a contract to Dutch multinational Fugro to carry out geophysical surveys and site investigations across three of its offshore wind farms. The company plans to combine East Anglia 1 North, East Anglia 2 and East Anglia 3 into a single East Anglia hub capable of delivering 3,100 megawatts which will be enough to power around 2.7 million homes. Once complete it is hoped the 6.5 billion hub could generate around 10% of all the UK's offshore wind power by 2050. Fugro is set to start looking at sites and export cable corridors from July of this year, with its work continuing into 2021, enabling work to start on ground models and preliminary designs. When completed, the hub will comprise up to 263 wind turbines, and Fugro's work will include turbine-specific site investigations across all three locations next year. The initial 1,400 megawatt of power to be generated via East Anglia 3 has secured planning consent and applications for a further 1,700 megawatt split between East Anglia 1 North and East Anglia 2 have been submitted. It is hoped that the creation of a hub will cut out construction times and energy costs. Scottish Power Renewables has finished building the 102 turbine East Anglia 1 field which lies 43 kilometres off the Suffolk coast and is now fully operational. Hub boss Ross Ovens said awarding the major contract to Fugro was a significant milestone in the East Anglia hub project. 
He said, Fugro's work will provide us with the key data we need to plan and develop our sites, keeping us on track to create the hub which will play a key role in helping the UK reduce its carbon emissions. The benefits of the hub surpass green energy provision and will bring a wealth of opportunities to the local and national economy, with long-term investment and job creation during all phases of the project. Richard Hill, Fugro's proposal manager for the project, said it was a significant and exciting project. Our innovative technologies, experienced geophysical and geotechnical survey teams and large capacity for advanced soil testing laboratory in the UK will be crucial in helping Scottish Power Renewables meet their project timescales. Now, stepping back in history a little bit, the North West Tower, which stands by the River Bure in Great Yarmouth, is to be given over to the Town's Preservation Trust as part of a project to see the building restored and transformed into holiday accommodation. Great Yarmouth Borough Council has launched a funding bid two years ago for the Tower's restoration. Earlier this year, it was recommended ownership of the monument was given over to the Great Yarmouth Preservation Trust to apply for Architectural Heritage Fund money. And at a meeting of the Council's Policy and Resources Committee, councillors voted unanimously to grant the project £20,000 of funding from its reserves. It is hoping to receive up to £170,000 from the Architectural Heritage Funds for the building's restoration. The tower, of course, used to be part of the medieval town wall and has more recently been used as an office. And another historic building in Great Yarmouth is already back in use. St George's Theatre will open its doors for the first time in months. Sorry, it actually opened its door for the first time in months on uh, Wednesday of this week. It is being billed as a chance for movie lovers to sit back in a safe and socially distanced environment and escape to a pre-coronavirus world of drama, music and humour. The first screening will be the feel-good comedy Military Wives at 2.30pm. Other films to come include First World War Blockbuster 1917, Judy, Fisherman's Friends and The Personal History of David Copperfield. Kevin King, General Manager, said it's a very exciting time for us all here at St George's Theatre. These midweek movies, along with the launch of our new website and the updated cafe menu, have given everyone at the theatre a real boost after such a long period of despondency. We're looking forward to getting up and running again and have our team of staff and volunteers back to welcome our loyal and incredibly supportive audience members. There will be some notable changes to keep everyone safe. Audience numbers will be smaller, a new track and trace policy has been put in place and hand sanitising stations will be available. Unlike most cinemas, we don't have fixed seating, so the audience is comfortably spread out. If demand is high and we can't fit everyone in for a particular film, we will simply put on extra screenings. Well, that's very good news to hear. Let's uh, hope it gets very well supported. A historic Quayside pub is set to host afternoon drag brunches. A Quayside pub is celebrating a new era with a shiny, jewel-encrusted logo and a growing food offer. Landlord Andrew Livingstone says business is booming at the Duke's Head in Hall Quay. After moving from Key Pride, an LGBT plus venue, he built up with his former partner. The Quayside pub, down on South Quay at the hub of the town's Pride celebrations, is now up for sale. But the party continues at the flint-decked Duke's Head, one of Yarmouth's most historic watering holes, dating from 1609. 
Its new signage features a crown decorated with six colourful gems, reflecting its rainbow roots. But overall it aims to welcome everybody under its Zero Attitude Bar mantra. Mr Livingstone, known for his performances as Miss Tish Yu, said the pub was still a safe gay space and gay owned, but with a more inclusive vibe. He said things were changing in the gay community and there wasn't such a need for exclusive venues, with the stress being more on diversity and inclusivity. At Key Pride, the offer was loudly announced as being of and for the LGBT plus community and the former pub was painted in vibrant rainbow colours. But at the Duke's Head, the rebranding has been more subtle. The 41-year-old said, Going into lockdown was extra frustrating because the pub was doing so well, often completely full on a Saturday night with its popular Wednesday karaoke nights, still doing great business, as they did at Key Pride. However, it meant they could work on the kitchens, bring more to the table in terms of food with roast dinners and fresh stone-baked pizzas now on the menu. He said, we were just hitting our stride in February and on a Saturday night, if you weren't here by 10pm, you wouldn't get in. So it was frustrating. It is a very welcoming and safe space for anybody and this is very much a new era. With such a good following for live entertainment, it was disappointing not to be staging any during the pandemic. But in time he hoped to introduce afternoon drag brunches with a bubbly. Given the number of inquiries, many from hen parties, he said the demand was out there for a fun afternoon tea with entertainment including live singers. On the pub theme, there is a row over the future of a remote pub in the Norfolk Broads. The Burnley Arms pub out near Reedham has been closed for five years, however. A bid to reopen part of it as a licensed bistro has just been refused by Broadland District Council. Among the objectors to the proposal was the Broads Authority, which raised a range of concerns, including noise, the safety of boat users making use of the bistro late at night, and the ability of emergency vehicles to access the site. While it was ultimately the decision of Broadland councillors to refuse the application, the team behind the pub has criticised the Broads Authority's objection in particular, given that prior to its closure in 2015, the site had been licensed for many decades. David Tarry, who represented the pub at the licensing hearing and runs Loddon Marina, has since said moorings on the site would not be removed in response to the application's refusal. He said we gave everything we could to try and make it happen, but if the committee felt it could not be run for health and safety reasons, then there's not a great deal we can do. It now feels there is no real future for it. That's the long and short of it. We were working on finding a way to make it viable for several months, but it doesn't feel like we were given a fair chance. The day after the decision, Mr Tarry wrote to Broads Authority Chairman John Packman, informing him he would be closing the moorings by the site. A Broads Authority spokesman said, Individuals or businesses are free to open or close privately owned stretches of mooring as they see fit, and the moorings at Burnie Arms Pub are no exception to this. The Broads Authority has two stretches of free 24-hour moorings open in close proximity to the pub that can be accessed by boaters at Burnie Arms Reach and Burnie Mill. He went on to say the Broads Authority is not the licensing authority in this instance. However, if approached for comment, we will support licensing applications that have shown consideration for the local area. The authority objected to the initial licence application on grounds relating to noise disturbance. The application requested a licence to serve alcohol and play music until the very early hours of the morning. 
The authority therefore regarded the nature of the application to be inappropriate considering the location of the premises. We fully appreciate the importance of the hospitality industry to the broads, both for local residents and visitors to the area. When approached for comment on licensing applications, we review each case on an individual basis and will support those that we deem to be acceptable and well considered. Yeah, very contentious, I would imagine. It's a great shame that the area can't still uh, be used, but we can see both sides of the argument, I'm sure, in that one. Now, a Facebook group which urged people to avoid a seaside village has been rebranded following extensive criticism. The group, originally called Boycott Hemsby, caused controversy after saying it wanted to, quote, warn locals about their behaviour. The group claimed some visitors experienced hostility and rudeness from residents while visiting the village after coronavirus lockdown measures were eased. Now, however, the group has been rebranded, with the page administrator apologising calling for a boycott. In a post to the group, they said it was set up in response to some reactions from local residents towards holidaymakers visiting during the pandemic. Acknowledging local businesses which have been badly affected by a lack of visitors during lockdown, the administrator announced the group was being renamed We Love Hemsby to spread positivity around the village. Now with more than 300 members, the group describes itself as a place to, quote, share your love of wonderful Hemsby, Scrapby and Newport. The group was heavily criticised after being created, with Chairman of Hemsby Parish Council Keith Kiriakou stressing visitors are welcome with open arms. He said it's just mindless stupidity. I don't know why anyone would try and bring down the town like that. Yes, when Boris said everyone could come to the seaside, we were wary about tourists like everyone else. But we welcome holdymakers with open arms. A lot of people here rely on them, and to suggest otherwise is just disgusting. In one of the first significant easings of lockdown restrictions in May, Prime Minister Boris Johnson said people are allowed to visit parks and beaches, including the Norfolk coast. Yeah, social media. A bit marmite, isn't it, really? We either love it or hate it. Thanks, Andrew. News two coming up in a short while. In the meantime, I've been reading a fascinating piece about the time when Great Yarmouth had its own queen. This self-appointed queen was a Great Yarmouth legend with delusions of grandeur. But Queen Martha Staninot was treated with respect, apparently, in the town. She was, by all accounts, eccentric. Having worked as a servant, as she grew older, her conviction grew stronger. She believed she actually was the Queen of England. Martha Staninot was born in 1734 in Great Yarmouth, and ruled from her lowly home in one of the town's crowded rows, convinced that her family was royalty. In the 17th century, mental illness was seen as both a natural and a possibly supernatural event that could have been caused by enchantment or even by astronomical events. Families might pay wise women, cunning men, herbalists or astronomers to help treat their loved ones, while institutions often offered brutal living conditions for those who were ill, with a common belief being that fear could restore a disordered mind. In Great Yarmouth, however, Martha was treated with the utmost kindness and respect, 
and are given an allowance from the parish and many private sources. As a young woman, she had served in the upmarket houses of rich Yarmouth families. But as she had grown older, she had become ever more eccentric, eventually believing that her brother John was entitled to the crown and that, in turn, she should be treated as queen. She carried in her hand a selection of items which symbolised her royal standing. A seal, a triangular piece of French chalk, a French half-crown and the title page of an Act of Parliament. People addressed her as Your Majesty and when she was in church, where she was a regular, she would protest against praying for the King and Queen. Martha was neatly dressed, faultlessly polite and refused to take charity, although she would accept loans on the basis she repaid them when her allowance arrived. Her royal role meant that she decided that she was compelled to travel, and she would sometimes walk the 20 miles to Norwich to call on the bishop at Norwich Cathedral, and even made the long 135-mile walk to London to speak to the Prime Minister of the day, Lord Francis North. When faced with the Yarmouth Queen, Lord North was kind and pleasant, sending her back home with the assurance that the next full cart of money which had come into the town was intended for you. On another visit to Westminster, Martha was taken ill at Leyston in Suffolk and was taken back home to Yarmouth, where she was received into a workhouse and treated with utmost care and attention. Until the very end, in November 1804, she believed herself to be the Queen and her faithful attendants, all of whom she promised handsome rewards to, were loyal until she drew her last breath. As an aside, the row where Martha lived, row 28, Condro, ran from North Quay to George Street and was the first row south of the Conge. It was where several almshouses stood which provided a place of residence for poor, old and distressed people, and also some cottages which belonged to the Hospital of St Mary. A man called Cockrell, who was on the run from the police, once entered the chimney of a house in this row and found himself stuck. The chimney had to be dismantled in order for him to be freed and then arrested. The row had disappeared by a survey in 1936, taking with it the royal residence and, presumably, any statues of corgis. Enough. <laughs> News the second, and back to Andrew. Now, here are three items about local people who've given an awful lot to others, two in education and one on the high seas. A popular head teacher is stepping down after 12 years in charge of a fast-growing Norfolk primary school. Elaine Glendening who has been head teacher of Southtown Primary in Great Yarmouth through significant changes, served her final day at the end of a very unusual summer term. With not all pupils being in classes due to coronavirus, she was wished a very happy retirement with a difference by the whole school community, who said a strange but heartfelt farewell from a distance. Children created cards, pictures and books with meaningful messages and staff held a small picnic lunch for their much-loved head teacher. A bigger celebration is planned when it is safe to do so, offering families, colleagues and children the chance to say a proper goodbye. 
Mrs Glendinning said, It is strange to be leaving without having the chance to see all the children back in school. Susan Miles, the current deputy head, will take over as head teacher from September the 1st, when the school joins the Waveney Valley Academy Trust. Mrs Glendinning will be continuing her links with the school as a new trustee. She started her career in 2003 and quickly moved into headship. During her 12 years at Southtown, she has seen the school convert from infant to primary and the numbers on the roll expand. The school underwent significant building to accommodate the new junior children. I've loved every minute of my time at Southtown and know that the school is in capable hands as I leave, she said. Mrs Miles said, Elaine's legacy will be the commitment she has to all families and children who live with such high levels of poverty and needs. She has ensured the school supports these children and this work I am pleased to continue. Mrs Glendinning said she plans to spend her retirement days continuing to work with Suffolk Lowland Search and Rescue as well as spoiling her four grandchildren with number five on the way. She received numerous retirement gifts from families, colleagues and governors which centred around her love for sport and being active. But she also gave back by donating a new bench for children in the playground and presenting a painting of the school which she had produced herself. And a Coastal College's Chair of Governors is stepping down from his role this month after helping it achieve a series of successful milestones. East Coast College Chair of Governors Mike Burrows is stepping down from the role he has held since the inception of the college in August 2017. During his time as chairman, he has overseen the successful merger into East Coast College of Lowestoft Sixth Form College and developments including the opening of the 11.3 million Energy Skills Centre, offering state-of-the-art facilities for energy and maritime training at the Lowestoft campus. Recently, he helped the college to gain its financial health good rating and good Ofsted grade, making East Coast College the largest Ofsted good college in Great Yarmouth and Waveney. Mr Burrows has held the role of chairman since the inception of East Coast College in August 2017, having previously been a governor at Great Yarmouth College since 2016. On July the 6th, Mr Burrows launched a new East Coast College strategic plan, which maps out the college's vision for the next decade to prepare students in a post-Covid world, meet the needs of local employers and develop the college's curriculum, partnerships and community presence. Stuart Rimmer, the CEO and Principal of East Coast College, said, Mike Burrows has been an amazing servant to the college, leading the board in a difficult period and helping deliver some superb success, such as financial stability, securing funding and opening the Energy Skills Centre and, of course, the Ofsted Good Grade earlier this year. We have been very lucky to have him as chair and we wish him our very best at the end of his term of office. Mr Burrows is succeeded by Rob Evans, former senior leader at the UEA and past chairman of Great Yarmouth College Corporation. Mr Rimmer said, Rob brings a huge experience and focus to the college, developing higher level technical skills and higher education development for Great Yarmouth and Waveney in the context of post-COVID recovery and the college now seeking outstanding status. Mr Evans became a governor at Great Yarmouth College in 2012, moving up to chairman in 2013. He was integral in the successful merger of Lowestoft College and Great Yarmouth College 
and held the position of chair until the merger in 2017 when he became a part of the East Coast College governing body. The college is also keen to recruit new governors to help guide, monitor and lead its strategic direction. Now, the ashes of the last surviving crew member of the legendary Galston lifeboat, the Louise Stevens, will be scattered at sea in a fitting tribute to the service and love of the waves of a gentleman named Ron Mallion, who's died at the age of 98. Ron was involved in a clutch of historic rescues and one of the last of those who served aboard the life-saving craft, which was well known as one of the small ships which took part in the wartime Dunkirk evacuation, and he sadly died just a month before his 99th birthday. Mr Mallion joined the crew in 1954, serving mainly as a mechanic for more than 12 years, and one of his earliest launches involved dramatic events at Great Yarmouth Britannia Pier, when the theatre and dance hall burned down in that same year. In March 1961, the lifeboat went to the aid of a Norwegian freighter, the Gudvig, 16 miles northeast of Yarmouth. That rescue made history as it was the first time land-based firefighters were taken out to sea to tackle what was described as a floating inferno. Both the ship and the crew were saved, but the lifeboat, having returned after a gruelling 12 hours at sea, was immediately relaunched to help a freelance television cameraman whose boat had run into difficulties. The Louise Stevens was stationed from 1939 until 1967, launching a record 303 times. That's amazing. Mr Mallion's late nephew, Peter Johnson, himself a former member of the crew, saved the disused lifeboat in 2013 and began a restoration project, which, despite his death, is continuing at a specialist boatyard in North Norfolk. Before the war, Ron's older brother Frank served briefly on the Elizabeth Simpson lifeboat and the family tradition continues, with his youngest son Des, a third generation member of the current crew. Born in Godmanchester in Cambridgeshire, Mr Mallion moved to Galston in 1933 when his father Ernest became signalman at Galston-on-Sea Station. He began work as a butcher's boy at Bellamy's and met his wife Vera when they were both in their early teens. The couple married in 1947 and celebrated their 72nd anniversary last year. Ron joined the RAF and served with Air Sea Rescue in the Indian Ocean while his wife worked on barrage balloons and spitfires. He returned to civilian work as a train mechanic and spent most of his working life at Prester's Builders Merchants where he was head of maintenance and a lorry driver and after he retired he was groundsman at the Goulston Tennis Club until 1997. His interests included roller skating and he was an instructor at the indoor rink at the Galston Holiday Camp after the war. For his 80th birthday he fulfilled an ambition to take a hot air balloon flight over Norwich and he maintained his love of the sea, attracting coverage in the Great Yarmouth Mercury, as one of Britain's oldest jet ski enthusiasts when he was still riding his son's Des's machine in the 1980s. He and his wife were also supporters and fundraisers for the Parent Teachers Association at the then Cliff Park Secondary School. And Mr Mallion, a lifelong fan of the Hippodrome Circus, was dubbed by ringmaster Jack Jay as probably the country's oldest circus fan when he last visited the show there for his 97th birthday. For the last two years, the couple had lived at the Lydia Eva Court Care Home, where Mr Mallion was popular with the staff who described him as a perfect gentleman. 
Mr Malian, who had three grandchildren and two great-grandsons, died peacefully at the home, surrounded by his sons Tony and Des and his wife Vera, aged 96. And in a very fitting tribute to him, the RNI flag is flying at half-mast outside the Galston lifeboat shed. We're struggling but surviving. That is the message from Great Yarmouth traders as they adapt to the demands of the new normal. For many shops, the arrival of tourists and the start of the summer holidays has given trade a welcome boost. But for others, location, staffing issues and reduced demand means footfall is still way down. Steve Cook, who owns Branded Toys on Regent Road, said that while customers picking up the past three weeks have been completely dead. He said, this is the first week we've been steady since reopening. Since the rules on face coverings came into play, we've decided to offer people masks if they forget theirs. I'd rather that than we lose the sale altogether because we have to turn customers away. And while to some Regent Road might look busy from afar, Mr Cook said it was a case of perspective. He said, when you stand at the top, it looks rammed. In fact, it seems busy wherever you look from a distance. But once you start walking down it, you won't see many people around you. It's a bit misleading. Meanwhile, on King Street, things were noticeably more quiet. At the Grasshopper Health Store, shop worker Ramona Balkan said the business was surviving but struggling. She said, we opened a month ago and admittedly it is very slow. I'm not sure people have the money to get all the little things they used to. She added, we were concerned that making masks compulsory might affect things even more, but it hasn't. We have signage on the door, and when people come in without a face covering, I remind them that they would be liable for a fine if they choose not to wear one. After that, they usually comply. I realise most people have one in their pocket, and though they may hedge their bets initially, they are polite and understanding when I ask them to cover their face. It protects me as well as them. Just down the road at CEX Exchange Store, staff member Daryl Peterson was standing outside in an effort to control the flow of customers and provide people with a mask if they didn't have one. But he said each day was extremely hit and miss. On the first day we reopened, we had queues down to phones for you, but then on the other days it's really empty, he said. The lockdown didn't affect us too much as we have online sales. And actually, because we are an exchange service, lately we've seen an increase in trade, given that people have more things they want to sell to us because they need the money. Moving along to Market Row, however, it was a different story. Norman Nisbet, who owns Norman's Antiques and Tilly's Alterations, with his wife said people were forgetting about shops in the row. He said the problem is the barriers at the top for the Santander Bank queue at the marketplace make it look like the row is closed and are confusing for people. Market Row as a place to shop was badly advertised before coronavirus and this has just made things worse. But my wife is making masks for people and that's keeping us alive. It doesn't cost much to get the fabric, but then we can sell them on for £5. That's our main trade at the moment, not the antiques. For Penny Judson, who works at Unique Crafts alongside owner Jane Littlewood, this summer's takings will be nothing compared to usual, she said. Miss Judson said, we've cut our hours back from 10am to 2pm because there's not a soul walking down this row after then, and it seems pointless being open. Besides, Jane is shielding and will be until August the 1st, so staffing issues have made things difficult for us. People have been fabulous about the masks, but barriers at the top of the row make it look inaccessible. I really hope we will survive this, but it's such a shame that so many others haven't. Yes, the town centre is 
not the nicest place in the world at the moment but let's hope people adhere to the rules and uh, find a way back in there to keep the loved shops going for much longer and as well as the trading problems in the borough there is a social issue too COVID-19 has a lot to answer for but there has been one silver lining the perhaps temporary but total eradication of rough sleeping in just one night, Great Yarmouth Borough Council identified and attempted to house every single person sleeping on the town streets. A small number did not comply, and there were a couple of evictions from B&Bs after problems with tenants in the weeks that followed. But overall, it was a conundrum that successive strategies had struggled to solve. Indeed, the government had said the town had another five years to achieve what was carried out in 24 hours amid a global pandemic. Sheila Oxtoby, Council's Chief Executive, said Covid was the key that made it happen. It could not have worked as well at any other time, she says. The challenge now being to end homelessness permanently as lockdown is eased and people potentially go back to their old ways. Already the day drinkers are clustering with cans on the steps of town centre buildings enjoying the sun. These people and their, quote, street-acquired lifestyle may not be homeless, but they are being targeted for help under a multi-million pound bid to build on the successes so far. New figures have revealed that on March 23rd, under the Everyone In programme, 31 rough sleepers were given a roof over their heads. At its peak, the council was housing 85 people, deemed homeless or sofa surfing, and overall around 150 have been helped. Of the original 31, 25 are still in council accommodation, giving them an address and access to benefits and potentially jobs, and 24 have been given tenancies. It is estimated around 75,000 homeless people were housed across the UK. As lockdown is eased, investment is needed to help people stay off the streets in longer-term housing, and the council is bidding for £6.4 million to create close to 60 units of one-bedroom accommodation. Council leader Carl Smith said, we need to build on the work we have done over the last few months. That piece about the 1960s music scene now, here's Andrew to explain. Okay, um, in this section, as you know, uh, normally I have someone, a guest that we have a, a discussion with, a little chat with, to tell us of uh, what they do, what they've done in their life. And today um, I'm joined by a musician uh, friend of mine by the name of Steve. Steve, welcome to Grapevine. Hi. Nice, you, nice, nice chat. Hi. Yeah, you've been involved in the Norfolk music scene now for many years. Um, can you tell me a bit about how you got started? I don't want to be boring, but I, I think um, when I was a child, I, I always liked to sing, and I can remember my, my parents sort of hooking me up onto a stage at one of these social clubs, and I... I sang some sort of strange thing called I'll Join the Legion. I would be about <laughs> eight then. Um, and uh, from there on, uh, Skiffle came in, and a few years later, when I was about 12 or 13, we, we formed a Skiffle group. We called ourselves the Cravats. Uh, we all wore these silly cravats. But mm. anyway, that's that's by the by. We then uh, um, did a few weddings, and, and we got paid two pounds uh, for, a, for a venue at a wedding, which was quite a lot of money a for a young chap. Yeah, one was uh, we, we had washboard, tea chest bass and two guitars, one of which I played. 
and uh, sang along with all those old skiffle songs from back then. We then uh, progressed uh, a little later on and we formed a, a band just late in school, I'd be about 17, I suppose, 16, 17, uh, with some friends. And uh, one uh, lead guitarist, they came from, well, they all came from in around Norwich. And uh, we became Steve and the Flintstones. Good name. We then, yeah, we then went on to play lots and lots of places in and around Norfolk. Quite a lot in Yarmouth. We did all the usual places like the Goodness Hotel and the Wellington Pier. Um, Some of which um, obviously no longer no longer exist now, Steve. But you, did you have any particular favourites? Uh, the biggest jam we did or get, uh, gig we did, I think, probably would be at the Winter Gardens one August Bank Holiday Monday. Right. They locked about two thousand people out really? of the venue. Then, yeah, we were playing with a band called Wayne Gibson and the Dynamic Sounds, who I think came from London. Hmm. Very very good band. But it was the biggest audience, live audience, I've probably played to, um, always played to, and it was absolutely packed. Okay. The old Winter Gardens. I didn't realise the Winter Gardens would hold a capacity like that, but... Uh, oh, there's yeah. a lot of people there. Uh, then we went and played at the Carlton Hotel, Garibaldi, uh, the Flower Hall was George Edwards and his big band, and you just did the rounds, also in and around the rural parts of... Norfolk and Suffolk and sometimes Huntingdon and occasionally you go down as far as London. And, you, and um, you're working at this time as well, you're doing a day job as well are you? Yep, I, I worked in a solicitor's, uh, the rest of the band, the drummer was a dental mechanic, uh, the rhythm guitarist was a, 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 was a photographer, the bass player was still a student and the, the lead guitarist he, he was a butcher. Right, so, so you're playing at this stage perhaps three, three or four times a week? At one stage, yeah, we always played, well, three or four times a week. Um, in, uh, but we, we sometimes we'd play six or seven consecutive really? nights. It just depends. In those days, there was great demand for That's right. live bands, especially in the country, around places like Wooden and Tivitzel mm. oh, St. Mary and all those kind of in Great Yarmouth in that in that time in the 60s and 70s, um, a lot of big names as well obviously came to the region with uh, with the holiday industry, etc. And there was a lot of up-and-coming uh, bigger bands. Um, did you play on the, on the same bill as any of these? Yes, oh yes, we played with quite a few of them. In fact, a little bit of a tale here. Um, we did a Huey Green opportunity not sting, I think, on the Wellington Pier. Uh, he used to run these these uh, talent sort of things, and he would interject it with um, Bert Whedon and people like that. Oh, yeah. all, all his Playing a day, Bert Whedon. Yeah, but sitting in the audience once when we did a, a, a one of these Sunday afternoon, Sunday evening things, uh, was a chap who was then called Shane Fenton, um, and we did a, our own version of an old Nat King Cole number called Pretend. Mm-hmm. And he sat in there listening. And then two years later, when he became another name, uh, um, he got it to number two. What did he become? I can't see the chap's name now. But he, he, and he used exactly our version of Pretend. It came out as a record. Um, chap's name. But anyway, his, his band brought that out. But we played with uh, all sorts of bands, really. Quite a lot. You forget that it was uh, the Remove Four from Liverpool and... We, had a, we were on the bill of the big three, but they didn't turn up at the time. But anyway, 
Um, and we went to see him lots and lots of bands. We, we played with Peter J and the Jaywalks oh. on stage at the Hippodrome. Good old Pete. Um, Jack J had the last stuffed Hippodrome and he wanted to run matinees and evening performances. And he'd had people like Susan Norm and Dave Berry. We were, there's quite a few of us on the bill. Oh. And uh, Peter J featured well. And I did mention this to him not very long ago and he did remember. Did he? It was, it was good old gigs, yeah. So, so have we progressed from two pound, two pound a gig now? Are we, are we earning a little <laughs> yeah, bit more? We, we, the heady heights are probably being paid something like thirty pounds a gig, thirty-five, forty pounds a wow. gig. But, yeah, but to get it in, in, in context to the, the earnings of the day, I worked in a solicitor. I probably earned four pounds fifty a week. Right. That's four pound ten shillings in those days, um, and. If I earned something like thirty to forty pounds per week with the band, mm. it, it's kind of if you said today's average wage would be for a young man, eighteen year old, was one hundred and fifty, two hundred pounds a week, and we were earning something like uh, ten times that. Yeah. And that kind of gives you the relationship why we could afford cars and go to London and buy Beatles stuff. Really. And, and yes. did you have a good following? You know, a good, had you built up a good we local did. following? We did. We always had a fan base who would come mm-hmm. with us. Uh, I, I mean, on reflection, you always think you're probably better than you really were. <laughs> but uh, we always did have a nice get fan letters and all this sort of thing. Um, yeah, it was all a little, always a little bit flattering. Yeah. And there was another side to our, um, our playing, insofar that we used to practice. We, we were all members of a, a youth club in Norwich called the Tuesday Club, which met at Princess Street Church. Uh, and we used to practice there. They gave us a room to practice, but in in sort of payment of that that sort of special privilege, we had to. Um, what they asked us if we would be prepared to go on radio and television, and 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 play pop music to words written by a lady in the church and she wrote religious words to things like the girl in your arms and all yeah. that sort of thing and we did a, a short tv sunday night tv program on this um and it, it and it was kind of uh, you know um another opportunity um as i say so so it was a whole diversified attitude to music and so forth and yeah. We kind of brought it to the masses through the church as well. But that yeah. was just the music, not the words. Yeah, of course, yeah. And was going back to, to the money side of things, um, you had to invest a fair bit in your, in your equipment. And I would guess on today's prices, equipment would have been very, very expensive compared to what we have nowadays. Yeah, I, I think we, we used to buy a lot of stuff from a chap called, from Wilson's Music Bazaar in Norwich. Mm. We did go to London once and, and go to Wardour Street and buy a bass and things, but uh, I, I can remember buying a Watkins echo chamber, and I think that was about 40 quid. Well, that was a lot of money in those days. It certainly was. And, of course, the gear's not as compact and uh, as oh, no, no, uh, micro-technological in those days, was it? No, no. I had a very clever cousin who loved dabbling in electronics and he made me a, in this early instance a thing called a reverberation unit which worked off a spring mm. and you would plug in and then you'd play it you put, put your vocals into it and then it would run down this spring and sort of double itself yeah. and then come out the other end i mean pretty naff really yeah but it, it did a job and, and, and of course you then progressed to better equipment and you bought vox amps and 
I used to have speakers made in the first instance because you just couldn't afford to, to go for these, these columns. Sure, sure. Okay. Are you still playing then, are you, you know, with any of your old bandmates? Are you still performing? Yes, yeah, we still... Uh, I, I'm always available from time to time for gigs if somebody needs me, but, but uh, that's kicked through and far. But I still jam every other week at Spixworth Village Hall when we're allowed to, obviously. But yeah. we're still not allowed to get together. And I was discussing with another member of the band yesterday about possibly trying to do an outside venue a gig on Elvis's death day, which is the 16th of August. Mm -hmm. We were all going to get together and have a go then, but uh, that's kind of maybe more difficult. Yeah, think I think I think so. At the, at the moment, it does seem to be very difficult. But I think the demand, I mean, we obviously everything's in abeyance at the moment, but I think the demand is still going to be there for live music, don't you, um, in the future? Oh, I think absolutely. it will come back you know, ever, ever so much as strong. Well, absolutely. I mean, you only have to see the crowds that go to see Take That yeah. when Elton John plays and so on. It, it's just something, um, it's just, I think live music involves you, uh, whether you're in, in the audience or whether you're on stage or whatever, live music gets you involved. I know discs and so forth are wonderful, you can play them at home and you can get on, but you actually encompass the whole feeling music and I can remember certain times when we'd had a really good gig somewhere and you were so full of yourself mm. enjoyed it so much it was absolutely unbelievable the sort of buzz that it gave you and I think audiences feel that self same buzz and I hope and believe that people will play in bands and learn the guitar or learn whatever the instrument of the day is and, and carry on really um, so that you might say sending out the message to the world that that music is good and good for you. Yes, I think that I, that is that is very true, and, I, and maybe as people have been a little bit starved of it, hopefully it will come back even even stronger. But you, you're certainly right about the encompassing the whole thing, um, and a number of uh, high-profile bands now have sort of uh, gone on to say to people, don't film it, don't watch it through a lens, just just watch us. Um, yeah. You know, rather than standing there with the cameras in the air, but uh, certainly, I mean, because you had to be enjoying it as well, didn't you? It wasn't. It, yes, you were you were earning money from it, but the enjoyment would be the biggest factor for you as well, wouldn't it? Well, these days, if you jam, you don't jam for any money, or I'm no. happy to. I would sing with that. It, it's it's. Uh, I mean, maybe my wife used to say, "Us now, it's old men with a bit of self-aggrandizement." But that's, that's not strictly true. You, but if it's in you, you want to play, you want to sing, you want to express an art. Yes, I of course. Mean, very rich people still carry on. I mean, the Lelton Johns of this world are multimillionaires. They don't stop wanting to perform. It's just the way it is. Yeah. Uh, you just love to do it. We were due, just as another thought, that we were due to play with the Beatles at uh, the Groove Run with Ray Aldous back in the, about 63, I think it was. But unfortunately, we were already signed up to play a series of gigs in other places. Mm. And uh, uh, we had to let it go to a band called Ricky Lee and the Hufflepuffs. But of course, my friends and the other members of the band have never forgiven me for not just doing it, whether we... Broke contracts or not. Yeah. Uh, one yeah, of those no, things... We're all wonderful with hindsight. We did play with lots of other you know, bands. So. Yeah, yeah. But uh, I'm sure, um, you know, obviously 
great memories for you and, and it's great to know you're still doing it still in, still enjoying it and still um, from the tone of uh, you, you speaking here you're encouraging other people to do it and get involved as well there's nothing like it yeah there's nothing like it Oh, that's great. Steve, it's been lovely to talk to you. Thank you very much for being on Grapevine and uh, all the very best for the future. Thank you very much. Nice to talk to you. Ah, memories, memories, and even more memories. Ah, Enough of this neuralgia or similar. And back now to Andrew for the last part of the news. A man who served the lifeboat station for 24 years has been hailed by heartbroken family, friends and colleagues as a true gentleman who always had time for everyone. Derek George, Secretary of Case to Lifeboat Station, died of cancer on July the 21st at the age of 82, leaving a gap in the life of the coastal village. He joined the station, where his ancestors had served as crew, in 1996, having been asked to do a small job by Harry Pascoe, a member of the original crew, that saw Case to carry on after the station was closed in 1969. It was a role Mr George fulfilled for the rest of his life, conducting lifeboat business until he was admitted to hospital a fortnight before he passed away. The lifeboat was in his blood. His great-grandfather, Charles Bonnie George, was among the casualties of the Beecham lifeboat disaster in 1901. Mr George, a wonderful storyteller, would often recount how his ancestor was the only crewman not to be recovered within 24 hours and how five months later his body was found washed up on Kessingland Beach and only recognisable by the darning of his socks. Over the years he told that story and many other lifeboat tales to thousands of people, taking great pride in giving talks on the history of the case to lifeboat. And the highlight of his life was a trip on the River Thames in 2012 and he stood on board the Case to Lifeboat in the pouring rain and with the crew saluted Her Majesty the Queen and the Duke of Edinburgh in the Diamond Jubilee pageant. And with his family watching from Battersea Park, Mr George took immense pride in presenting the lifeboat, its history, its day-to-day running and its future to the nation. His role as Secretary involved ensuring the lifeboat's compliance with the Maritime and Coast Guard Agency renewing its insurance policies and bargaining for the best prices for its utilities. He also gave presentations, more than 600 in fact, to groups of adults and children who were invited to the shed where they would perform dramatisations and operate the capstan. Passionate about giving children and young people the best start in life, Mr George was a governor at the Caister Infant School for many years and older children benefited from his expertise in his career as an engineer. He was chairman of the Norwich-based East Anglian Group for Industrial Training, which worked with many businesses to train young engineers. At the age of 18, having completed his A-levels, Mr George served his apprenticeship with the Advanced Tool and Machine Company in Great Yarmouth. On completing his training, he quickly landed a job at Lawrence Scott and Electromotors in Norwich, where he worked for 38 years until he retired having become manufacturing manager under the ownership of MSI Defence Systems, and his knowledge and understanding of engineering never left him. Whether it was making frames for the case to stitches, of which his wife Vivian is a member, to installing central heating to St Edmund's Church in West Caister, to building the audio story players for the case to lifeboat experience. His family said that Mr George loved a problem because he knew how to fix it, and enjoyed the challenge 
and always respond when he heard the words, Derek, can you just... Case the lifeboat flew its flags at half-mast in honour of his sterling work over the years. He leaves his wife Vivian, three sons and five grandchildren. His funeral will be held on Monday the 10th of August at 11am at Holy Trinity Church, with a cortege stopping briefly at the lifeboat station before the service. In accordance with the government's coronavirus restrictions, only family members can attend a church. The George family has asked for flowers from the family only and that any donations are made to the Caster lifeboat. Now, a boost for tourism has been announced. A 2.2 million package has been launched to support tourist businesses in Norfolk as they aim to lure back visitors following the coronavirus crisis. With tourism one of the key industries in the county, Norfolk County Council, in partnership with all seven district councils and Visit East of England, have agreed extra funding to help businesses and attractions to recover. The project, being funded from the Norfolk Strategic Fund, will focus on making Norfolk as safe as possible to reassure both visitors to the county and local residents. Immediate measures will include improving the presentation, cleanliness and hygiene of key locations and better communications to holidaymakers and day-trippers, both in advance and during their visits, for example through the use of marshals. A small grants programme is also being developed to support the cost of businesses adapting to the new normal and making the changes needed to extend the key holiday season after months of disruption. Graham Plant, Deputy Leader of Norfolk County Council, said The visitor economy in Norfolk is worth £3.25 billion a year and provides nearly 70,000 jobs in the county. With businesses forced to stop trading just before Easter, the start to the season, it has been amongst the hardest hit industries in Norfolk. This package of funding will provide vitally needed support to those businesses that COVID-19 may have had a devastating impact on. I hope this will help to restart the industry safely and our businesses will experience a safe and successful summer. Funding will be allocated to each district council and visit east of England with the aim of boosting the visitor experience while still maintaining coronavirus public health messages such as social distancing. Business owners have been warned an upturn in tourist numbers in the remainder of the summer holiday period could be crucial for the sector. Pete Waters, Executive Director of Visit East of England, said This initiative is exactly what the industry needs as it seeks to get back on its feet. It is hugely important as businesses reopen that visitors and residents feel safe and are reassured. A second spike and lockdown would end Norfolk tourism in 2020 and exacerbate what is already a precarious position. Let's hope that this money is uh, able to be used wisely and indeed the summer does uh, end up very well for all our attractions here. Now the heritage body Historic England has raised concerns over a countryside development of 665 homes and the effect it would have on a landmark castle if approved. It is worried about a quote change in the setting which would cause harm to the monument reputedly the home of Shakespeare's Falstaff and one of the finest examples of early brickwork in Britain. We are to course talking about Caister Castle here. The estate called Magnolia Gardens is being planned by Persimmon Homes on land west of Jack Chase Way in Caister some 530 metres from the castle 
and its collection of vintage cars. The bid has been trimmed from 725 to 665 homes and has been billed as a quote natural extension to the seaside village which is one of the top 10 in demand for homes in the country according to the estate agent's right move. It includes provision for a new school, community centre and health centre on the site which comprises of two arable fields part of Nova Scotia Farm and sits opposite another persimmon development at Beecham Grange which is still being built. However, in papers submitted alongside the outline planning application, Historic England has raised concerns about the effect of the homes on the high status residents designed to be seen in and command views across the landscape. It says it also has concerns about the remains of a Second World War gun battery which are said to have a low level of significance but according to the public body are incredibly rare. Graffiti by Canadian soldiers stationed there during the conflict in nearby barns adds to the context and makes them more valuable, the letter says. It goes on, The proposed development will result in an increase in the overall mass of built development at Caestron Sea, to the east of the scheduled monument and Grade 1 listed castle. This would result in a change to the setting of the castle through the removal of part of the castle's open landscape context in that direction. This change would cause some harm to the designated heritage asset. It also asks for views from the tower to be considered, not just those from ground level. Building a large residential development immediately in front of the gun houses was also an issue. Caister Castle is one of the earliest brick residences to be built in Britain, dating from around 1432 and its first owner was Sir John Fastolf, reputedly the inspiration for Shakespeare's Falstaff. A 42-page built heritage statement submitted as part of the bid concluded the impact of the estate on the castle and nearby hall would be towards the lower end of less than substantial harm, and was outweighed by the benefits. Meanwhile, Anglia Water says that while the sewerage system has capacity, the development will lead to an unacceptable risk of flooding downstream. Highways England has raised concerns, although does not object overall. It has suggested a string of adjustments and notes the Norwich Road roundabout will be pushed close to 100% capacity with queues likely under the present layout. Numerous objections have been raised to the scheme, although some have written in support saying the new homes are crucial to the housing supply, helping local people to stay in the village and get on the property ladder. That's where the balance has to be struck, isn't it? The demand for homes and the effect on our rural landscape. Now, we end with a little bit of a mystery. A circle of colourful teacups and striped china chamber pots have been removed from a busy roundabout on the A47, seemingly bringing an end to a crockery bombing phenomenon that had lasted for weeks. The china had begun to appear on the traffic calming circle close to Galston's James Paget Hospital in early July, with more and more cups being added throughout the month. But on Thursday morning, motorists passing the otherwise unremarkable junction were surprised to see the crockery had vanished, and Highways England, which earlier in the week had said it was as puzzled as everyone else about the multiplying mugs, has now said that contractors working for the agency removed the china on Wednesday night. A spokesperson for Highways England said, Placing the teacups on a busy roundabout is dangerous. 
not just for the perpetrator, but also for the drivers using the roundabout and our on-road teams who have to remove them. One motorist said, I drive past there daily and they were there last night but gone this morning. To be honest, they amused me. It was a simple thing that brought the community together and a lot of people detoured to that route to be able to see them. I personally don't see any harm in them. The China's appearance was shrouded in mystery and had prompted mixed reaction among locals, with some regarding it as a distraction likely to attract vandals, while for others it was just a bit of fun, started by someone with a good sense of humour. By Wednesday, some 40 cups had encircled the junction, which locals had renamed Mad Hatter's Roundabout or Mug Island. According to varying reports, a single mug or teacup had sat on its own for some time, but had been added to in recent weeks. A teapot had appeared there and had also been sighting of plates at another nearby roundabout. Nobody was sure if one person was behind the explosion of China or if others had decided to join in. A neighbour who lives nearby had said she wasn't convinced it was art or litter, but mainly a bit of fun. Now I'd heard that the crockery had reappeared in a children's playground. So I guess what you lose on the roundabout you gain on the swings. Or is that just a storm in a teacup? Anyway, on that note, it's time to say goodbye for this week. Enjoy the good weather. Keep safe, keep smiling. Until next time on Grapevine. Well, that's just about it for another edition of Grapevine. Just time to inform you that Grapevine Volume 40, number 31, is copyright 2020 of the Great Yarmouth and District Talking Newspaper Association. The content, in the main, is adapted from the publications of Archant Limited and is used with their consent. However, the Great Yarmouth and District Talking Newspaper Association accept responsibility for editorial decisions made for this recording. From Andrew and myself, it's bye for now. Margaret will be back with us next week when we hope that you will give us the pleasure of your company for number 32 in our 40th year. In the meantime, have a great week, keep well and keep safe. Bye for now. Bye for now.